Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is English TV presenter Elton Wellesby, ITV's frontman on the match from 1988 to 92, which showed the final four years of Football League Division 1 football before Sky and the Premier League changed TV coverage forever. Discussed on this interview with Elton, who strikes me as what in football would be termed as a bit of a character and appears to have an early Nokia mobile phone. Judging from the audio, are his dual love of football and rugby league, his passion for Everton, his association with legendary Liverpool manager Bill Shankly during Elton's formative years as a young journalist, and also later at Radio City as his broadcasting career took off, reaching its peak in the 88-92 era during which he presented a World Cup, a European Championships and the biggest league title decider there's ever been. Aside from that career as one of the nation's most recognisable sports presenters back in the day, it turns out Elton is something of an earpiece pioneer. Yes, you heard right. And I think you'll agree, might also have easily considered a second career as an impressionist. This is Elton Wellesby. You were born in St. Helens, just north of the Mersey, for any uh, listeners catching this abroad. A lifelong Everton fan. Did you come from a family of Evertonians? No, not at all. My parents, uh, my dad, was uh, he used to play rugby union for Cowley School and St. Helens Rex. Although my cousin Bill, my cousin Bill Wellesby, he's become a big Everton fan because his grandson, Danny Wellsby, is actually doing quite well at the Edmonton Academy at the moment. So that's the only connection, really, with the family in Everton. So you're also a, a rugby league fan, are you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. How does that duality work following two very big, passionate sports? I mean, I know rugby league is a summer sport now, but back yeah. in the day, it was a winter sport. How? Did you manage to follow the fortunes of both your teams? I don't know. It's probably the best answer. But I used to get around back in 1985 in St. Helens. It's known as the Meninga season when Mal Meninga played for one season for Saints. And Saints won the championship, the Lancashire Cup. It was fantastic. But I was still, you know, sort of working on Granada sports rather than the network. And yet I, I seem to be, I seem to have been every match. It's amazing. There's a great picture taken out. It was originally published in the St. Helens Star of Meninga going in for the killer try against Hilkington Rovers. George Fairburn was trying to tackle him and he didn't have much chance, really. And jumping out of the dugout uh, is me <laughs> saying, instead of the coach, I'm jumping out of the dugout saying, get in there, Mel. And my son, Chris, was about 15 yards behind me. That happened. I went into the... Uh, St. Helens Star, and it's, uh, you know, everyone says, Do you, you really support Saints? I'll say, take a look at that photograph. <laughs> How did you end up in the dugout? Well, I got to know Billy Benyon very, very well, who's the coach that season 
And he said, would I come into the dressing room before the game, half-time, sit on the, the bench? He seemed to think, you know, I would help to settle the players who were nervous and, and just have a bit of a laugh with them. Because tactically, I'm, I'm just a rugby league fan, but some of the tactics, crikey, you know, not a chance. But that, yeah, he asked me to do that. And I did so many times. I always took my son with me. Just did that time and time again. But I say somehow football didn't seem to get uh, in the way of it. Were you equally as passionate at the football as you were at the uh, at rugby league games? Oh, no. F- football's, well, it's been my life, really. You know, if I had to toss up, you know, toss up a coin, which, which one could you do with that and which one would you continue following? It, it would have to be the football but having said that that ain't gonna happen so i still get the chance to watch the saints and and watch everton so i am very happy more than happy with that this is a football podcast but seeing as you've got this very strong feeling for rugby league i want to ask you this question just as someone who doesn't know much about rugby league but i remember in the mid 90s when it made that switch to a summer sport and there was this American type renaming of some of the teams, you know, uh, bringing yes. in these animal names. It just struck me yes. as, you know, the Leeds rhinos and, and yeah. the, the drastic switch in seasons. Which was the only club that didn't have anything attached to their name? I'm guessing it was St. Helens. St. Helens. You've got <laughs> Wakefield, whoever they are. Uh, <laughs> they've all got, you know, sort of silly names. You're right. It is very razzmatazz. It's very sort of American. But I don't think it damages rugby league in any way, shape or form, just just because, you know, they're getting a bit jazzier. I thought I was going to hate it, to be truthful. But And, and also, you, you'd realise now, as opposed to the winter game, they have to be so fit because in the main, they're playing on hard surfaces rather than the mud that we used to get in the rugby league. And, you know, in sort of January, December, January time, it was awful. So I, I think possibly the players are fitter now, you know, in the Super League because they're playing on hard, true surfaces as opposed to quagmires. Well, it's a similar story with football, isn't it? I mean, we talk about how the game these days is so different from the football we used to watch 30, 40 years ago, and they attribute that to a lot of the new ideas and the foreign players coming in. But the whole improvement in pitch technology is often overlooked. Never mind diets. What about the pitches? They're like carpets nowadays. Yes. Well, I remember Stan Gibson, who was the groundsman at Main Road, Man City, oh, 30 years ago, must be 40, cranky. Um <laughs> Stan got the award for, you know, the best pitch, not in the Premiership, because the Premiership wasn't around then, but Stan got the award for the best pitch. And I uh, could see why. It was just like a carpet, you know. And yet when they started playing, it started up. And I, I know what you mean. There must be a rock bed or something better underneath the, the... I'm not very technical. I think you've gathered that by now. <laughs> but pitches do not cut up. So I can only assume it's better grass. Growing up, you would have been following the Everton team as it took shape under Harry Catrick's long reign. They win a, a couple of titles in 63 and 70. There's an FA Cup in between. As a boy, did you have any particular players from that era that you remember fondly to this day? Well, I first uh, went to Goodison. My dad took me to Goodison in 1962. And we had stand seats behind one of the goals. I can't remember which one it was, but behind one of the goals. And um, Everton were playing Cardiff. And Everton won 8-3. And the player who just orchestrated the game was, was a, a player called Alex Young. Later right. to be known as Golden Vision. And I always identified with him. He was my idol when I was, what, 11. I think I read somewhere that you ended up meeting him and that love that you had for him as a kid was evident in just how yeah. joy it seemed to, to, to meet him in person. Well, Instant John was talking to this guy about the same size as the Saint. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I... I wrapped up the programme, blah, blah, blah. And I was coming back in. It was at, it was at Goodison into one of the hospitality lounges. And I went to talk with, with Saint. I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, you know, that kind of thing. And said, well, that's all right. You know this fellow, don't you? And I just, I looked. And then I, I did a double take. 
bloody hell. <laughs> it's Alex. And we got to know each other quite well over a few years doing you know, Everton nostalgia dues and what have you. He was always invited. That was great to actually meet him. But so long after, <laughs> I used to chant his name. What is it about Everton fans and their centre-forwards? There seems to be such a strong bond between that club and their number nines. I mean, we're talking Duncan Ferguson, Graham Sharp, Bob Latchford, all these guys that came after the Golden Vision. There's Joe Royal, you know, you've got Dixie Dean further back. It's very difficult to say. We don't give the, the number nine shirt to anybody. It's kind of got to be special to get the number nine shirt. Yes, it goes back to, I, I think it's it probably after the 63 championship season, because our front two, although Alex was number nine and Roy Vernon was number 10, you wouldn't have called them, you know, typical centre forwards either. But together, they were just magic, absolutely magic. So I think the, the number nine thing, you know, it does go back to Dixie Dean. I can't think of any classical number nines up to 1963. And I suppose, yes, Alex Young wore number nine, and he was the darling of the crowd. So well say it started with, started with Dixie. There were a few lean years, and then Alex took up the mantle. And, of course, after Alex, Joe Royal, as you rightly said. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, Sharpie, Andy Gray. You know, now we're Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And I think this is a, he's a tremendous little player. And I think he is well-deserving the number nine shirt. Because you can't fail in that number nine shirt, you know. <laughs> you gotta be, you got to be worth something to play that. <laughs> when we talk about the great managers of English football in that era, Harry Catterick seems to be slightly overlooked. And yet I read somewhere that no manager had a better points record than Harry Catterick in the 60s. No manager won more points in Division One than him. I didn't know that, but um, I don't find it hard to believe at all. Harry was an introvert. I got to know him after he retired. Of course, over the park, there was what you could kindly call an extrovert, <laughs> Bill Shankly. So that's, that's what happened, really. Harry was, uh, he was quite happy to sort of play second fiddle to Shanks in a way because he knew he couldn't match him for Shanks' rhetoric. So Harry just sort of got on with it. And was very, very successful in doing that. I mean, two league championships and an FA Cup. Should have been two FA Cups, by the way. I say he pales into insignificance in comparison to Bill Shanky. But Harry's record was terrific. And we've got a similar thing here now. Carlo Ancelotti, fantastic. You know, wow, that Everton could attract a manager of his calibre. Marvellous. But over the park, you've got Klopp. So to me, it's like Jurgen Klopp's throat. Bill Shankly, on the other side of it, Harry Catrick stroke Carlo Ancelotti. How do Everton fans say of your generation regard the Harry Catrick reign now and Harry Catrick as a manager? Oh, brilliant. Sometimes when, when, a, you know, when a club wins sort of two league titles, as you mentioned, after, the, the core of the team stayed the same. But the 63 team and the 70 team, you know, seven years apart, but it, I mean, it was totally different. So Colin got an early debut, Colin Harvey. Yeah, he got an early league debut against Liverpool. And he was also, uh, he played against Inter Milan, didn't he? But I was just trying to work out this Lebone. There's one. There you go. You know, players who won the 63 title and the players who won the 70 title, Lebone. Just before we leave the Everton thing and move on to your career, the 70 team from what I know, was also a young team, well-remembered to this day. The 85 team, which is a, a team that I remember really well, rated by many as the club's greatest ever side, managed by one of the 1970s greats, Howard Kendall. Do you have a, a personal view on which of those two title-winning sides had the edge? I'll always have a soft spot for 63. By 1970, professionally, I was, I was getting on well with, with the players. So I was I was kind of delighted for, you know, Big Joe, particularly, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, and of course, you had Kendall Bull and Harvey. I mean, that that's that was just the the dream midfield. I, uh, I don't think anyone will ever come up with three players who could, who could run a game from midfield. 
hours, but absolutely fantastic. And the 85 hours, there's a case for that being the, the best side. Have you seen that documentary, Howard's Way? I have, yeah. Yeah, well, there's a clip in that uh, from the Cup Winners' Cup final in Rotterdam where Everton just played like Barcelona. And <laughs> before Barcelona invented the tic-a-tac football, but that was just it. It was fantastic. And I think it was tricky Trevor Stephen who blazed it over the bar after the most intricate build-up work, you didn't see that Barcelona style, the Man City style, the, the Pep Guardiola style. This was, wow, it was... And anyone listening to this, if they haven't seen Howard's Way, watch it. It is fantastic from start to finish. But just look at that move. It, it's absolutely different class. So let's move on to your career because you've had a, a, a long career as a sports journalist and presenter. I think you started with the Liverpool Weekly News. Given your love of sport, given your love of football, had that been the plan for you or did you fall into it? I fell into it. My dad, who was a, a bank manager, uh, knew a lot of people in, in the, well, in London, you call it the city. And he got me an interview for the Royal Royal Insurance, and I spent a year at the Royal Insurance, and I hated every minute of it. I just, just went in one day and said, Let's give you a month's notice, but I want to go now. And I did. I left, and I went to work as a hospital porter at Broad Green. I did that for a year, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It really was. Uh, a few few of the family friends uh, said, look, you know, it's about time you got a vocation, not just, you know, £14 in your pocket every week. So I was walking down the corridor and they have a little stall there where they sell sandwiches, grapes and newspapers. And I saw this newspaper at Liverpool Weekly News. I thought, I'll have a look at that. So I bought it and went back to the porter's room and started going through it. That was something like 10 pages of sport. I thought, this is ridiculous. This is me, you know. And so I applied to Ron Carrington, who was the, the managing director or managing editor, should I say. And they asked me to join them, you know, before I got home. It, it seemed to be that quick. You know, I got a phone call that night saying, you know, when can you start? I said, well, Monday. I really enjoyed it. I, I made some very good friends at the Weekly News. It was it was a great grounding in, in journalism. You know, you, you still felt like you were writing for the Times or the Guardian or you know, whatever, even though it was only the Liverpool Weekly News. But it was a very good paper. I don't just mean the sport. I mean, it was a very good paper. It primarily was south end of the city, Garston. I started my football reporting covering South Liverpool in the uh, the northern, it was the northern Premier League. And I used to go with them home and away when I was at uh, the Weekly News. I really enjoyed it. I was almost like the, you know, the 12th man in those days. But I did come on a substitute. So, so, seriously, I, uh, are you being serious? Been, yeah. So hang on, you came on as a sub in a game. Yeah, it was Kidderminster in the Lakes. Yeah. Okay. K Shoes were their sponsors. So you don't believe me, do you? No, no, I have no <laughs> I've no reason to disbelieve you. I just wasn't expecting oh, okay. that. So the I'm team were a man short, were they? There were twelve players on the coach. I'm not gonna mention his name, but one of them was absolutely pissed. <laughs> and the manager, Alan Hampson, you know, realised, because everyone was trying to, his name was anyway, smashing lad. The players were trying to shield him from the manager because the players knew that he was, he was rat arse. And um, anyway, Hampy being Hampy, we pulled in the services of the, you know, the M6 there, pulled into the services and he told to get a taxi home. So that left him with 11 players and a journalist. So, so just just sit on the bench. You probably won't have to come on, but just sit on the bench, chain, look good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, I did get on. I got him. I think I got on for Jerry Glover, who won the Youth Cup with uh, Everton. Yeah, I think I came on for Jerry. Jerry Glover. It wasn't for long. My first football club when I was ugh, seven or eight was Macclesfield, Macclesfield Town. Uh, my dad used to handle their accounts and everything. So we got great seats 
oh, I prefer to stand up in those days. That was great for Macclesfield. So it was, it was odd when I was with South Liverpool all those years later that um, the trainer was off. He couldn't make the trip to Macclesfield. So they were left without a trainer. Nowadays, it's physiotherapy and a team of medics, you know, for anyone that goes down. But in those days, it was the old bucket and sponge. And Arthur Goldstein, our right back, he went down, got clattered. He went down, he's, he's lying on the pitch, you know, his legs were straight out and he was obviously hurting. So Hampy said, get on, get on. With what? You know. So I ran on with a bucket and a sponge. And Arthur Goldstein looked up and said, what are you doing here? Well, I said, Ampy said, you know, I said, just make it look good when I do it to you. So I washed his legs. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, memories, memories. Dear, oh, dear. While you were with the Liverpool Weekly News, you created a feature called A Day in the Life of a Football Manager. And your first guest, I think, was Bill Shankly. What can you tell yeah. us about that? He treated me like royalty for a day. Have you got a motor car, son? This was at Melwood when the training was over. Have you got a motor car, son? I said, yes, I have actually, Bill. Thank you. And uh, he said, right, you follow me and Joel. Back to Anfield, and, you know, had a snack. Then I sat in his office for hours, just, you know, just sort of asking him questions about, does he go and see the opposition, you know, the following week or something, or does he go and watch a player, you know, with, with a view to maybe signing that player? Oh, it, it, it was ridiculous. But I got to know him even better when I went to Radio City. Yeah, well, we'll come to that because I know you were both working there at the same time. In terms of this time that you spent with Bill Shankly on this feature, A Day in the Life of a Football Manager, did that give you some idea of the pressures faced by managers and perhaps shape the kind of journalist reporter that you went on to be? It's pretty deep. Not from that series, by the way, it was a series of one. Okay. Um, no, because it, I mean, he did things differently to anybody else. So if you don't think, well, here we go, I'm spending the afternoon or whatever it was with the prototype manager. He wasn't. He was off the cuff. I remember Brian Hall telling me <laughs> they went to, to training one day. Everyone met up, they, you know, got their training kit on. They went once round the pitch at Melwood, closest to the dressing room. They ran round them once and Shank said, Great boys, go and get your shower. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> you won't find that. You won't find that anywhere. He was unique. Absolutely. Broke the mould. Anything else you want to say? But that was Shanks. By the time you were presenting the final years of ITV's live league football in the early 90s, yeah. would the kind of access you'd had to the likes of Bill Shankly for that feature, all those hours that you spent with him, would that kind of access have still been possible? ITV, just in general, had a very, very good working relationship with, with all the clubs, the, you know, from the chairman to the, you know, the tea lady kind of thing. David Dean, the power behind Arsenal at that particular time, couldn't do too much for you when you, when you went, you know. And it, was, it was always a pleasure, you know, because it was live football. It was once a week, one football game a week on live television. And I think the, uh, you know, the powers saw that this is the thing of the future. So not thinking that Sky would come in and pinch it off us, <laughs> but I think they saw where you, you look after the television people and they look after you. As touched on a, a few minutes ago, you cross paths with Bill Shankly again when you both have your own shows on Radio City. There have been so yeah. many things written about Shankly over the last few decades. And I was going to ask you, as you got to know him, was the man himself different to the man we all read about? But I get the impression that what we read about him was who he really was, that he was larger than life. Oh, yes, absolutely. He was an absolute legend. And it's, certainly the, the period I have with him at Radio City, every Saturday, the Bill Shankly show went out a, a long time ago. I think it was either 12 till 2 or 1 till 3. And no, that wouldn't be right. I think it was 12 till 2. You know, his first guest was the then Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. That was the first guest, his first first show, and that was his first guest. Okay, and yeah. what your show was after Bill Shankly's show, was it, on the Saturdays? 
Well, then I'd be off to Goodison or Anfield, or I might not even be there if it was an away game that we thought it was, you know, we thought it should be covered. So I sometimes wasn't there when when Shankly did his show, but I watched quite a few. I actually produced one, one of them. Wally Scott was the, the producer, sports editor, producer of the Shankly program. And Shanks used to drive him nuts occasionally. Wally said, oh, God, I, couldn't, I couldn't face it again, you know, next week. Can you fill in for me? I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. Who's the guest? And he said, oh, we booked Lulu. So I was, I was producing this. Uh, oh, dear, dear, dear. Do you want me to tell you the story? What happened? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's hear the story. Lulu. Okay, so Lulu's in. They get on great. And, uh, you know, he asked, it, asked her, you know, how it all happened for her. And she said, well, you know, I was with uh, this band called uh, The Lovers. And we did uh, a song called Shark. I went mad and oh, it was wonderful. And he, she had, she has mentioned at some point in that she came. That's right. She came down from Scotland with the lovers. So Shank said to her, "I'm beginning to ascertain your name, isn't it? Really, Lulu?" And she said, "Oh, that's right, Bill." All of a sudden, she's talking like Nicola Sturgeon. It was ridiculous because I realised what had to happen if anyone tuned in late. It was just Shanks talking to a Scottish no one knew she was. So I had to put a, a piece of tape, put it with a quick voiceover on it, saying, welcome back to the Bill Shankly show. Bill's guest today is the legendary singer Lulu. Now, you might be confused out there because Bill doesn't call her Lulu and she sounds nothing like Lulu. But believe it or not, it really is Lulu. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It was called Anne-Marie. Not Lulu, he was called Anne-Marie, he knew. Oh, legend. So through the 70s, you're making a name for yourself on Merseyside as a reporter. You're covering Liverpool's emergence as both the new domestic power in English football, but also as yeah. one of one of the yeah. new powers of European football, which, you know, given your Evertonian background, uh, professionally, that I'm sure would have been brilliant uh, on a personal level perhaps less so. Was that exclusively for Radio City? Yes, because Everton were going through a bad spell after they won the championship in 1970. Nothing was settled. It was, you know, was buying bad players and things like that. Whereas Liverpool, you know, from when Shanks retired in 74 and Bob took over, you know, Liverpool were flying. So, and my boss, Terry Smith, he was the managing director of Radio City. Actually, Years later, he came in Liverpool on, on the board of Liverpool. And he, he pulled me in one day and he said, look, he said, I know you support Everton, but he said, we are getting a lot of advertising on the strength of Liverpool doing so well. You know, and you seem to be very popular with their fans with the style of your commentary. And I said, oh, that's very nice to know. He said, so you're not doing Everton anymore. <laughs> he said, you're just Liverpool, home and away. That's what I'm doing. I love the European trip. That was fabulous. All over Europe. Yeah. <laughs> and half the time, you didn't get to see the city you were in. I never saw Barcelona in 76. Went out for a meal with, with the journalists, uh, the paper guys. Went to bed, got up, didn't do much. Homework for the game, that kind of thing. And then after the match, we just flew back. People tell me Barcelona's a lovely city. And I say, yeah, yeah, I've been to Barcelona. I haven't a clue if it's a lovely city or not. <laughs> We know a lot about what the city of Liverpool was like in the 80s, those struggles during the decade of Thatcherism, the high levels of unemployment. We know a lot about how that dominance of English football by Liverpool and Everton during the 80s was a something of a salve for the city at such a difficult time. What I personally don't know much about is what was Liverpool like as a city in the 70s around that time when you were building your career? I started working as as well as doing my weekly news shift, I started working at the Shakespeare Club in uh, in Liverpool. Uh, the, it's a cabaret club, but it was. I mean, it's down at Fraser Street. And uh, I started working there uh, of a night. Loved it, you know. Quite often the players would come in. It you know, perfectly okay for them to come in on a Saturday night after the thumps them on 5-0. And they used to come in on a Saturday night quite regularly. And it it's, I tell you, I, I find it very difficult to actually describe how the city was at that time. 
I mean, I go back to Liverpool now. I live on the Wirral, but I go back to Liverpool now. My girlfriend's from Liverpool. She's there. And when I go over, I think, I don't know where I am. How do you get to, how do you get to that? I mean, when I was working at the Weekly News, I used to drive in from Collestown, where we live. You know, I knew every shortcut, you know, to avoid the traffic. But now I just, I just don't know where to go. Sad. In the 70s, the city, was there a vibrancy about the city that was missing in the 80s? Come kind of 1970, the music style was changing, but it was still clinging on to the, you know, the Mersey sound, Beatles, Jerry, rest in peace, and, and all the other bands that came on. It's always been musically very, very solid, Liverpool. But really in the 70s, it was, you know, keeping alive the spirit of the Mersey sound. The 80s, I was over here then. So uh, I find it very hard to judge. The only place I used to go to was the two places I used to go to in Liverpool were Goodison and Anfield. And then sort of halfway through my time at Radio City, that's when Terry Smith called me in and said, right, you, you know, you're doing Liverpool. Your early days on Radio City, you were working both as a sports reporter and a commentator. At that time, where did you see your future lying? I don't know. I didn't jump the gun. It took me four years probably three to four years, to actually feel totally comfortable in what I was doing in terms of commentary. I did some reports, but in the main, I was the commentator. Paul Doherty, who was head of sport at Granada, this is in 19, 1977. Uh, he rang me, I didn't know him from Adam, and he said, I want you to come and work for me. I said, all right, okay, what am I going to be doing? Not a lot, <laughs> just, you know, learn about TV. Basically, is, is what it was. That's, that's what happened for 18 months. This is at Granada uh, TV. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I was that pissed off that, you know, I wasn't doing what I was doing at Radio City, all being a totally different medium. I was thinking, you know, if the, if Terry Smith had rung me up from Radio City and said, you know, do you fancy quitting and coming back to City? I probably wouldn't have. There's a, a pivotal moment, though, in your career development when uh, Paul... Doherty steers you away from commentating and moves you towards presenting. Was there any yeah. resistance on your part? No, not at all. I realised quite quickly, really, that this was meant for me. Nothing could rattle me. Nothing. Oh, it was a real challenge in those days. It's so much easier today. Only reason being, technology has increased so much. It, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I might get bored of us doing it today. Doing it back then from, seven, well, say, 79, 80, 79, 1980. And then, obviously, we took off then. You know, then Granada Sports Department was absolutely revolutionary in many respects. We introduced new sports to television, Crown Green Bowling, which I absolutely love. We actually, it was 85, I think it was, before Cup Finals, United, Everton. For three days, we did live croquet on the lawn outside Granada. <laughs> Oh, God, bloody hell. Shit. That was torture. It was with, and a lot of the older listeners would uh, would know who I'm talking about, John Oaksey, known as Lord Oaksey. Horse racing was his key, but he was very posh. He took the, um, a plum in his mouth, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and he'd have a bottle of red wine under, his, under the desk where we sat, you know? Yeah, black croquet. When you talk about it being more challenging in those days, do you mean presenting was more of a challenge? Well, it was, yeah, but it was the only thing I was used to. That was the way, you know, you, you did it then. If you were linking into, example, a clip of whoever in an interview recorded earlier, the tape would have to start rolling 10 seconds before you queued it. They have instant cues now. So all you get is people talking in your ear saying you're doing this, you know, the, the PA going 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, all that kind of stuff. That's one thing I insisted on, open talkback, which meant I could hear every single department working on that program, everyone. Graphics, telecine, everything. And people often say, doesn't it put you off? I said, no, it doesn't, believe it or not. I'd be lost without it. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't have done it, really. They say rehearsal. For some reason, I got my earpiece in, and I'm thinking, ah. I don't like it like this. So I put me a piece in and sort of say to the, the studio gallery, can you make a noise, please? <laughs> you know, not the same if I've got my earpiece in and you're all making a noise. 
Paul Doherty encouraged you to use a handwritten script to memorize rather than the autocue when you were working on shows like Soccer Night and Kickoff. What were the advantages of, of working with handwritten scripts? Yeah, handwritten scripts, definitely. But with, with them being on your desk in front of you while you, you're talking to the, the audience, it was challenging. It was challenging. But, I mean, I like to think I can't look back on my career and say, oh, God, there was you know, a terrible gaffe. I made a terrible gaffe. I honestly don't recall doing any. Not using autocue was a big, big plus. And I told that to Richard Keyes years ago. And Keyes, he doesn't use autocue. Now, he's in being sports now in, uh, in Qatar. He doesn't use it because if you're reading off the camera and something changes, you know, it's very hard to, to read words that are going up and down in front of you. If the words that were written before were kind of outdated. But that's so to just sort of look down at my notes and uh, think, right, get rid of that stuff. All in the head. That was challenging. But I, to start with, I, ended up, I found it great fun. When you work like that as a presenter, are you memorizing the script or you're just, you, you're giving yourself, uh, it doesn't matter how you deliver the you, you don't need to deliver the information word for word you just need to deliver that information in some way is that the advantage of having the script i mean you're not like an actor trying to remember word for word no that's that's correct i mean the, the script that i used to write write myself and will be on the uh the desk in front of me to be honest with you i, I quite often didn't read it i just ad-libbed it i used to enjoy ad-libbing and of course, no one in the studio gallery, like the PA, who's meant to, you know, roll the tape ten seconds before, you think he's off script. What's he doing now? And I just just tick my nose, and Pierre uh, Jean would would roll the tape, and then I'd I'd live my way to zero, and then the tape took over. Were there any particular football presenters that you admired at the time as your own career was uh, breaking through? No, I don't think there was really. There's no one when I thought, oh, I'd like to model myself on him. I would say Des Lynham was, was very good. But Des wasn't really a football man. He was a boxing man. Yeah, that was in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I was the first journalist to, you know, to actually specialise in live football. I mean, St. John had a little go of it. Uh, Bob Wilson had a little go of it. But they weren't very good. Some of the football shows you presented uh, for Granada were the kickoff match, uh, match night, which was on Saturdays and uh, match time. 1978, Michael Gray, then at LWT, uh, London Weekend Television for any listeners outside of London or the UK. They won the exclusive rights to all league football coverage for ITV in a move. The media famously tagged Snatch of the Day, the Office of Fair Trading. They blocked the move. But the BBC is forced to allow ITV to take over the Saturday night slot in alternating seasons. And this begins in the 80-81 season. Did this also mean that Granada's football shows went out on a Saturday night in those seasons? We did Saturday night one season, then Sunday afternoons the next. I remember this as a kid in London. And I have to say that the big match on a Saturday night for me, it just went up a level. I don't know why that was, but I thought it was an even better program on Saturday nights rather than the Sunday lunchtime show. Did you have a preference? There's something about the Saturday night which was a buzz because, you know, we had so many games that have to be edited, things like that. You know, we sometimes go in, and there's one thing, you know, the great uh, advantage of not using an autocue. All of a sudden, such and such a game, which we were going to lead on, let's say, say it's a 4-4 draw and it would take whoever editing, it was taking, you know, a bit too long. And so that would be shunted down the order and we just changed, you know, we go to uh, another match for the, the first, the, you know, the first one we showed. If you're using, using autocue, you probably have a heart attack. Still to come. Steve Koppel, who has always been a very good friend of mine, he was turned up for the match. And he said, I've got nowhere to stay. I said, no problem. I've got two beds in my room. You're more than welcome. He said, oh, that'll do. So did the match, went out for a meal, actually managed to have some wine with the meal. Went back, I would think, say about one o'clock in the morning, um, sort of asleep. And about four o'clock, it was like World War Three. 
had started. We jumped out of our beds to, you know, what's going on? Who's invading Naples, you know? Well, what it was, the Neapolitans had planned a massive firework display to commemorate Italy's win and going to the final. With Argentina winning, they just forgot about it. You were one of the first specialist football presenters on ITV. Before that, for years, there were the likes of Brian Moore, who'd often front any live football for ITV and then still commentate on the actual game, which... Yeah, by the end of the decade, you just couldn't imagine that happening anymore. Well, we didn't used to do match of the day. And the only live football before that was, was the FA Cup final or something like that. But on, on a regular basis... On a regular basis, so I, I guess I was the first, yeah. Just prior to becoming the anchor man for the match in 88, you've got three or four years doing the results service for ITV on a Saturday. That came in after World of Sport finished, right? That's right, yeah. What did that give you that you were able to take on through the rest of your career? Well, it was fly by the city of pants. There <laughs> was no script at all. Just go in and I'd wait for the producer, like called Bob Patience. Sadly, he's passed away since. Uh, he knew exactly how I worked. So I never knew. So it was the last seconds, two seconds maybe, that he'd say, now we go to Goodison. Uh, you couldn't have that on autocue. It could go in and down in front of your eyes. But it was a fabulous show to do. God, the noise, people shouting at each other. and things like I heard it all. In 88, ITV wins the exclusive contract to show what at the time no one knows is going to be the last four years of Division One as, as we'd known it. Greg Dyke picks you to front the show. You're very young, really, at that stage. I think you're still in your mid-30s. You go on to do that for four years. Tell us about those four years, the people you work with, how that show evolved over those four years. To start off, Bob Patience used to like me to do a Saturday morning report from somewhere, wherever. I remember one of the most distinct one I can remember was going to interview Alex Ferguson for his uh, first game as Man United manager, which was down in Oxford. So I stayed I stayed at the Players' Hotel over the Friday night, interviewed Sir Alex at around about 11, and then had to drive back to London weekend, South Bank, and give it to an editor. So that was for the Satan Greasy show. But I used to stay in and watch it. I was in the studio gallery when St. Greenby's show was going on. And then it would be, oh, you know, let's all get ready for the three o'clock kickoffs. I mean, it didn't have Google then, you know. <laughs> Google, you know, to sort of say, what's Liverpool's record against Man United, for example? And you get everything you need to know. Had to do it yourself. The office sort of secretary, statistician, He'd give me a load of stuff, basically, appertaining to one match. And then he'd give me another load of stuff. So I had to use the lines, which are are the stats, which I thought were really appropriate. You just um, mentioned going to interview Alex Ferguson there. I'm just going to jump forward a bit. But I do remember that in the 91-92 season, you would actually have him there as one of your match analysts which is hard to imagine, even by the time, that, you know, just a few years into the Premier League, you would not have seen Alex Ferguson doing that. But ITV's The Match, he would be in there a few times as a, as a, a match analyst, and he was quite forthright with his opinions. I remember one, one match we did at Tottenham, and we needed to make something of a swift exit to go and get the plane from Heathrow to Manchester. So there was a car there to pick us up. We got in the car. And Fergie saying, I think we'll get there, you know, in time. I said, oh, yeah, yeah we should be fine, which we were. And uh, so we were, we were naturally on the plane. And he said, someone told me that you knew Bill Shankly very well. I said, well, yes, professionally, I, I knew him, yeah. He said, well, God, tell me a few stories about him. I said, I was just sort of for, for half the flight, the back half of the flight to Manchester, I was telling him as many Shankly stories as I could imagine, i.e. The, the Lulu thing. And when we landed, it was very, very quick. It was probably about an hour and a half after the kick, after the, the match had finished. When uh, he said, uh, are you going straight off? Or he said, you want to have a coffee? I said, yeah, we'll go, yeah well, let's have a coffee. Fabulous. Well, there you go. <laughs> he didn't say very much. He just wanted to hear 
all about Bill Shankly. The first season, 88-89, that couldn't have gone any better for the match, could it? Because you anchored the famous Liverpool-Arsenal title decider in May 89. I've been watching clips of that on YouTube, the actual build-up to the game on ITV. You've got Liverpool unbeaten since New Year's Day. The coverage of the game opens with an interview with a nice, cool, confident George Graham. He's saying no one outside Highbury fancies them for the title so they could relax, enjoy the game, get the goals they needed. And as that dramatic second half unfolded, you had Bobby Robson in the studio with you. Do you recall what the mood was in the studio that night? Because it's a game that, you know, that will be talked about forever. Behind the camera team, we're in a truck outside, you know, outside the field. There was me, Bobby Robson and Ian St. John in the, the studio overlooking the pitch and what have you. Saint wasn't actually working, but he just thought it'd be a nice place to just come and sit and watch the game. And no, there was no real hint of what was about to come. Arsenal were playing very well. Of course, they were Alan Smith, you know, man of the match, and rightly so. He, he was terrific. But the thing about that interview you just mentioned with George Graham at the top of the show. Now, I don't know who edited that, but it was a crime. Because George Graham had said to me, at one point he said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, if we score one, we will score two. And they didn't put that out. Ah, I was, what's the hell? Why send me down to the Atlantic Tower Hotel to interview George Graham? You know, (laughs) the best line of the lot was missed out. It would have been an even stranger result had it stayed 1-0, Arsenal win the game, and Liverpool had actually clinched the title despite losing that game. That would have just been a very odd night. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, I I, I never even thought of it, actually, because with Arsenal winning 1-0, all the camera shots, were, if you remember, were on Steve McMahon saying, two minutes, two minutes, hold your fingers up. And it was all about, you know, all the emphasis was on Liverpool holding on. A year later, you cover the 1990 World Cup in Italy. Now, of course, here in this country, we have very fond memories of that tournament. Although, you know, elsewhere, I suppose, the negativity leading to things that, well, the negativity of that tournament, the kind of football that was played leads to things such as the back pass being outlawed. But for us, it's all about England getting to the semifinals, Jack Charlton and Ireland, it made the tournament just so memorable for all of us. What are your recollections of those weeks in Italy? Absolutely delighted with the whole whole thing. It was marvellous. I saw England games, but I never actually went to where they were training to to meet them and talk to them because I was always coming back from Turin or, or wherever, you know. It was a hell of a schedule, but it worked. You know, it really did work. And it was the first time that a major tournament had been presented from inside the stadium where the match was being held. That was the first one. Did you feel hindered by that? Because you had Nico in front in the coverage back home. You were in the stadiums. There's no on-site studio to protect you from the noise. How much of a challenge was that? Ah, well, (laughs) I had an earpiece specially made by a guy in Liverpool who makes earpieces for the deaf and things like that. So in other words, I had this perfectly measured for my right ear and there's a tube going into it which means I can hear you know the director the producer etc etc damn it but that style of earpiece had never been used before basically the the solid like the wax solid wax going into my ear just completely took away all the, the crowd noise whose idea was that did you have the foresight Going into that tournament, did you think I'm going to need something different to pull this off? Oh yeah, off? no, no, yeah, no one, no one said, "Oh, you better get yourself a good earpiece." I knew that because <laughs> some of the, uh, some of the, oh, when Italy were playing as well, and the atmosphere in the ground is absolutely terrific. It's a pity that what we saw with England going out in the circumstances they did, terrible. But, you know that was very sad. Obviously, we did that, but. It was strange. It was surreal. It really was. You know, Des Lynham came over to do the semi-final. The, B- the BBC thought, crikey, ITV are camped out there. We're just sitting in a cosy little studio in London. So they sent Des Lynham over for the semi-final and the final. And Des just had an ordinary earpiece. He lost it completely. 
he, he didn't have a clue what he was doing. Saying. He couldn't hear it, anything. I've never seen that back, and I have no desire to either. But uh, it did the rounds for a little while. Just saying, Des was saying things like, I can't, I can't, I can't concentrate. There's too much noise, too much noise. This was live on air. Yeah, strange. Oh, that, that earpiece didn't owe me, uh, didn't owe me anything. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. And I used it um, again in 92 for the European Championships in Sweden, by which time a lot of presenters, commentators, reporters, as, you know, had been asking me in a two-year gap between the World Cup and the, the Euros, you know, how did you do that? I mean, how could you concentrate in such a way that you could almost, it seems like you, you're putting the crowd and the noise, et cetera, completely out of it. Uh, that's a show. So get one of those then. That's the solid earpiece. One anchor who perhaps didn't get that earpiece or the earpiece that he needed was poor Matt Lorenzo, because I remember USA 94, he was also in the stadiums and he, he struggled to the extent that I don't think his career ever recovered from that. It didn't. It didn't. I'll say this before we leave that World Cup. The two semi, I mean, I don't think the tournament was brilliant, but the two semi-finals in that tournament, not only England, West Germany, but I thought Italy, Argentina was a brilliant game as well. The two semi-finals yeah. were outstanding. Yes. Oh, yes, very much so. Italy, Argentina. Oh, that was that was that was just. I don't have to describe it. It was weird. Half. It wasn't half and half, but the, the stadium was like full of Italians, and they were. This was in Napoli. You know, they didn't know whether to support their, their home nation or whether to support Maradona. Totally crazy. Dangerous place, Naples, as well. You know, we went around it a few times and mm, looking to get out alive. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the semi final, the semi final, they, they had prohibition throughout the day. You know, no alcohol to be sold throughout the day. Just for that I mean, game, or, or for, for the oh yeah, that, that, you know, that for that game, I thought it was very volatile with with some Italians supporting Argentina because of Maradona. When Argentina went through the final, we all went off back to the the hotel we were staying at, overlooking you know the, the harbour and the, the, the castle, famous castle, uh, load of no sand there, just all all rock. Steve Koppel, who, who's always been a very good friend of mine. He was turned up for the match, and he said, I've got nowhere to stay. I said, no problem, I've got two beds in my room. You're more than welcome. He said, oh, that'll do. So did the match, went out for a meal, actually managed to have some wine with the meal, went back, I would think, say, about 1 o'clock in the morning, um, sort of asleep. Then about 4 o'clock, it was like World War Three had started. We jumped out of our beds too. You know, what's going on? Who's invading Naples, you know? Well, what it was, the Neapolitans had planned a massive firework display to commemorate Italy's win and going to the final. With, with Argentina winning, they just forgot about it. So I can only assume some bright spark at four o'clock in the morning says, we oh, better let the fireworks off, haven't we? No point in wasting them. Oh, this is after the game, after they've lost. Yeah, yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Stevie Koppel in the, in the hotel room, fast asleep. Next minute, crikey. After Italia 90, there's a new buoyancy to the English game. As the front man of ITV's coverage, could you feel that added interest in the game going into the 1991 season? Oh, very much so. Yes, very much so. Um, I mean, Lineker's goal-scoring exploits, uh, you know, cheered everybody. Uh, but really, there was only one man on everyone's lips when the league football season resumed, and I was Gaza. You know, he, he was just about the most famous man in the country at the time. I don't think we can overstate just how good he was in that period of his career, just before the injury. Oh, fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It was a breath of fresh air, Gaza. But I mean, Bobby Robson said he was daft as a brush, and he was. 91-92, the last season of the ITV and Football League deal. What was the yeah. feeling at the time at ITV? Was it just accepted that the deal would be renewed? Yeah, we all thought it would be. You know, there was no suggestion that Sky, what was it, B-Sky, what was it then? 
B Sky B, I think. Uh, they, they, they were doing the Zenit something cup, didn't they? Oh, Zenit uh, data systems, yeah. So we, we didn't really fear it was going to happen, but obviously you've got to be realistic. And uh, it wasn't long after I got back from Sweden. I got the call from Paul, Paul Doc, and he said, look, it's not going to affect you as far as I'm concerned. We still want you at Granada, but, you know, there's going to be no national football except on Sky. So that was a bit of a blow, but, you know, we still did some great, great programs at Granada after that. I read an interview somewhere with Rick Parry where he was citing an example, in his opinion, of how limited TV coverage, football TV coverage, had been up until Sky came along. And he was citing the example of the 92 title chase between Leeds and United. And he said ITV couldn't show Leeds' final game against Norwich where they would be presented with a league championship because ITV had already shown its number of allocated live games. The Football League, they used to put a lot of obstacles in our way. We showed the, the highlights from the previous day. Uh, which I used to voice over with, say, Jim Rosenthal or Tony Francis. So we, we'd spend, you know, half an hour just to, sticking all the games together and then saying, you know, describing what was happening. But the league the league said, yeah, we can do that, but if there's a sending off or anything like that, you can't show it. Well, we thought that was crazy. You know, a game, a game could change on, on a sending off on a red card. And they said, no, you can't show that. I mean, they didn't help us tremendously well. But, you know, when Sky came in and put that astronomical bid in, sealed bid, wasn't they? You know, Sky had to basically have a, a, like a better relationship with the league that we did. Although we had a very good relationship with the league, or so we thought. Was there any thoughts at your end that Sky were the new boys who were going to be having some time in the sun, but by the mid-90s, ITV could bounce back and wrestle the live coverage back from them? No. I think once it had gone, that was it. So when you were at Sweden 92, going into that tournament, had that Sky deal actually gone through yet, or it was all up in the air? No, it was all up in the air at the time. Uh, It was all up in the air. I said, I got back from Sweden, maybe two days later, I was sitting in the garden at home, and my wife brought in, the phone said he's pulled off on the phone for us. All right, okay. So I thought he was ringing to give me a, a pat on the back, you know. But it was the, the news that we wouldn't be doing live football anymore. You know, we took it in our stride. But between, say, 92 and 2000, television changed enormously. ITV changed. There was no regional programs anymore. They're basically all cut out. The, the only thing you got, like, Granada Reports or, or something like that. Yeah, that was okay. I noticed Granada still do a political program. Is it late on a Thursday or a Friday? I've never watched it. You know, we still did the highlights. But I forget when they came to an end. It must have been around about 96, 97 that uh, we stopped doing that. Basically, Granada, they came to the, the, the conclusion, that they were probably right too, that you can't sell on a regional program. You can't sell it on. Whereas, like, Coronation Street... Emmerdale, you know, for the other, this was back in the day, you know, the other, you know, like Thames, Central, Anglia, Tynes, you know, they, they all whipped in, you know, to pay for Coronation Street. Granada specifically said, well, you know, we're not doing local programs anymore because we can't sell them. They're worthless once they've gone out. That was the end of a hell of a lot. And uh, basically I spent, it was about, two years doing Soccer Sunday, which I thought was awful. Was it hard for you to find the motivation when you'd been fronting football for the nation to just going back to doing regional coverage? No, no, I I enjoyed it. Not, say, as much as presenting the Cup Final, the World Cup or the European Championships, but I still enjoyed it. There was no, oh, this is beneath me kind of thing, far from it. ITV had the rights to the new Champions League in 92, which I think they'd been instrumental in putting together. I can't recall who fronted that programme. I have found highlights with Ian St. John anchoring the highlights uh, programme. Had you been in the run to front that new coverage? No. uh, Granada offered me a very lucrative 
exclusive contract. Granada, well, told me first and then told the network officials that I wouldn't be available to do their European coverage, which was a bit of a blow, really. But, uh, you know, Granada paid me very, very well to do the Saturday afternoon shows, uh, midweek highlights, Granada reports Monday and Friday. You know, there was enough to keep me, well enough to keep me going there. But um, if I could combine the two, we're talking Shangri-La, you know, if I could have combined the two, but um, it wasn't possible. When you were watching, or if you watched, some of that Sky coverage in the early years of the Premier League, were you impressed with what they were doing? Would you ever think, oh, we missed a trick there at ITV? Well, yes. I know what you're saying. Uh, don't forget, Sky, once they secured the bid, secured the deal to, to do you know live Premier League football, as it was then, of course, that was always going to be the end of it, as far as we were concerned, because they threw tons of, of money into into their football coverage, which ITV couldn't do. That they couldn't afford it. And yes, I mean, I was I was very impressed with with Sky and the way they got Rich Keys, a mate of mine, and Andy Gray. You know, I don't think the actual presentation and like the use of pundits sort of overtook us there. It was just in technology. You know, they throw millions, so they had more cameras covering the game than we ever did. All these new little inventions, different slow mo techniques, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, from a technical point of view, it was it was it was very impressive. If ITV had sort of outbid them, then I'm pretty sure we would have matched that. So we had some very clever technicians. Um, Roger Philcox is a guy that springs to mind at ITV, and if the likes of Greg Dyke, you know, sanctions, we'd spend millions more than we ever have done on covering the football, which indeed is what Sky did, then I think we would have been pretty much the same. I think we should end on a high note because it's important to remember ITV's huge role in making live league football a thing here. The first live game was in the autumn of 83, Spurs v Forest. That was ITV. There were innovations in the late 80s or early 90s that we now take for granted, such as having the score and the clock appearing on screen all the time, which wasn't the case, I think, when the match started in 88. I think that was something you guys introduced. And even going back to the 1970 World Cup, it was ITV who introduced those rather colourful pundits for that year's World Cup coverage that we now expect and take for granted really with 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 our coverage so itv did an awful lot they they gave sky a wonderful base to build on didn't they without a shadow of a doubt but you still you shouldn't actually copy anybody and i don't think sky copied us they they actually televised games i think they took it forward i really do but and we'll never know whether we'd have gone forward as well as they did i very much hope we would we would have done but I couldn't, you know, you couldn't say for definite. If people can, I think, appreciate the four years of the match leading to that, the, the final four years of the Football League, I, I think it's an important part of the story because prior to the match, I mean, we had the 85-86 season where half the season was missed because of the was it the, the, the problems between the Football League and television, unable to come to a, an agreement on showing live games or any football for that matter. Well, it was, it was, it was very good. Very difficult to accept, to be honest. It was at the time, but it, not, it didn't last a long time. I was still in work. I was still enjoying working on the, you know, the, the soccer night programs with Jim Beglin. Now, I'm not one to, to say, you know, Sky nicked all our ideas. It wasn't a case of that. You know, they came up with their own ideas. You know, it's worse. I mean, if you look at television now, I mean, there are times where there are 20 games on of a day, you know, between Sky, BT, and you know, I mean, you know, games from abroad as well, like La Liga, the Bundesliga, etc. All these, the Dutch league, they're on, aren't they? The Spanish league, you know, you still get the other one on BBC, Amazon Prime. They, they've had a few games and we'll probably be getting more. If you think of the number of live football games on television, almost on a daily basis, it's that. It really is. Cluffy collared me. We were doing a Nottingham Forest game and... Uh, he called me and he said, hey, you know, uh, there's too much football 
on the box. I don't mind you coming in and doing one, but there's too much. So I said, well, Brian, I'll tell you something. That's going to change. You know, it was always going down that route. Always going down that route. I think one of the reasons people enjoyed the match, uh, the match live, was because it was the only live football league show on, on television. You know, we had a, a captive audience, really. Just think about it. Anyone who liked football would tune into us on, on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it's amazing that we used to get by on 16 to 18 live league games a season. Yeah, extraordinary if you compare it to today. It really is. It's, it's amazing. All right, Elton, I, I appreciate your time. And I think uh, it's great to finish on that unexpected Brian Clough impression, which was very impressive. Thank you to Elton Wellsby. You can follow him on Twitter at Wellsby Elton, and you might perhaps compliment him on the unerringly accurate impressions you heard this week. Appreciate you guys listening. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you download it from and uh, share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links, reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical, as I said last week. In fact, they are all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. This show doesn't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase this show's visibility in the Apple Podcast store and help me to keep the show going the podcast can be followed on both twitter and instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shorts were short if you want to join the group page please do all my work can be found at danielruiztizen.com appreciate your time the artwork is by tom hadfield the music is 80 synth pop by toto cyberspace i've been daniel ruiz tyson this has been when shorts were short If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it.